Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. At various points in history, the United States has perceived itself as falling behind other countries in critical areas of commerce. Observing that governments around the world are actively involved in promoting individual businesses or even entire sectors, there are periodic calls for the United States to adopt an industrial policy, a more aggressive and targeted approach to growth than simply promoting general economic development. The successful development, production, and distribution of millions of COVID-19 vaccines in a short time is seen by some as a recent example of successful industrial policy. Which raises the question, is now the time to consider a more aggressive, defined industrial policy for the life sciences more broadly? Is this the best approach to accelerating innovation? These are the questions we'll discuss in today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with James Robinson, Leonard D. Schaefer, Professor of Health Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Robinson published a policy insight paper in the August 2023 issue of Health Affairs examining possibilities for U.S. industrial policy within the three principal sectors of the life sciences, universities and labs, startups, and larger pharmaceutical and device companies. Robinson writes that there are opportunities within these three sectors that could yield benefits for innovation. We'll discuss these opportunities, their implications, and their prospects in today's episode. Dr. Robinson, Jamie, we've known each other a long time. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. Pleased to be with you today. So I love that you write a policy insight that really gets us thinking more broadly and conceptually about the role of government in innovation. Uh, You basically argue in the paper that there is value of having a more formalized industrial policy to accelerate innovation. Now, I grew up at a time when people talked a fair amount about industrial policy and debated the merits and demerits, but uh, it's not a term that I suspect everyone's familiar with. Can you say a little bit about how you define the term industrial policy and maybe differentiate it from, as I said in the introduction, just sort of general efforts to grow the economy? Sure, I'd be be happy to, and also happy to uh, define it the way uh, President Biden uses the term, which is the same way I use it. So Joe and I, we're on the same page. I think the, <laughs> uh, the basic idea here is that especially in the technologically advanced sectors of the economy, such as artificial intelligence, semiconductors, and the life sciences, Um, There is value to having a more directly engaged government finance, government leadership in the product development part of the life cycle. The government has always been the primary funder of basic scientific research through the National Institutes of Health and other uh, entities. It also has always been engaged in what might sometimes call horizontal industrial policy, education, infrastructure, patent law, antitrust law, things of that nature that set the, that are industry agnostic. But what's going on now is a focus on what some people refer to as vertical industrial policy, which is focusing on the high-tech sectors because there is a, a, a great sense that the, the, the vitality of the U.S. economy and then therefore the vitality of the U.S role as a leader of democracy in the world rests on our ability to succeed and innovate and grow uh, the tech sectors, including drugs, devices, diagnostics, genomics, digital health, and the, the other parts of the life sciences. 
And as you note in the paper, some of those broader investments, like in basic science, uh, anyone can benefit from them. And you have to go to an academic conference or read a peer-reviewed article, as you note in your paper, uh, and then take that knowledge elsewhere. What you're describing is more of a top-to-bottom ecosystem to harness that general knowledge and turn it into practical applications, as I understand it? Yes, I think that you might want to think about industrial policy as having two prongs to it. One is to stimulate and encourage innovation, particularly in areas of national priority. That's number one. And number two is to ensure that the, that the nation that invests in them, the United States, gets a return on that investment, an economic return on that investment, and that the benefits don't just flow to other countries. And the backdrop of all this is how so many of the innovations developed in the United States now are the basis of industries that are located mostly in Asia. This is Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, but overwhelmingly now China. And uh, the, the semiconductor story is the best one here, but it goes for green energy, solar panels, uh, electric batteries, etc. And um, the president does not want that to happen to the pharmaceutical and the other life sciences, which at this point still remain with a very strong U.S. presence uh, we haven't yet lost those industries the way we've sort of lost a lot of these other industries. So if we want to keep the benefits of that innovation in the United States, or at least uh, uh, gain the benefits, uh, the primary benefits of them, in your paper, and I would encourage our listeners to read it if they want the full detail, you walk through three different uh, sectors within the life sciences as I said in the introduction, looking at sort of the, the uh, university lab side, the startup side, and the, the larger uh, drug and device companies, without sort of reading the entire paper, uh, which would actually make for a pretty good podcast, um, can you just say a little more about how you think we could have policies addressing each of those three sectors that would support the uh, goals that you describe? I think I would start by saying, first of all, that the life sciences industries are the most science-intensive industries in the whole economy, much more so than the computers or electronics or or AI. They're very based on the uh, life sciences, and so therefore the role of the university labs and other independent labs, mostly funded by the NIH, is fundamental. And the U.S. has always done a good job of funding that, and that really explains the strength of our performance to date. Uh, the main thing that needs to happen on that sector is uh, that NIH funding needs to increase at least at the rate of inflation, which it's not been doing. But that is, that's the main thing for the labs. At the other end, uh, there's the large uh, global drug and device companies, and their job is to do manufacturing and global distribution. They also function fairly well. Their challenge is that revenues come off of drug prices, and as we know, drug prices are under pressure both from public payers and from private payers and PBMs. That's a whole other topic. We could have a different podcast on that. 
It's the middle ground, which is the most sensitive. So uh, the entrepreneurial startup world, and also we refer to as scale-up world, startups are something that typically come out of the universities, spin-outs of the universities. They're little companies. They have three people. They have eight people. They have 20 people. And then they grow to something that has 300 people or 500 people, and then they eventually usually get purchased by a large company. It's that middle ground where the magic happens, where most uh, – uh, innovation happens, and it's though it's what happens to those companies as they try to move to the scale up that is the most crucial for the nation's prosperity. Because what we see in a lot of these sectors is that the U.S. university world works great, spinoffs works great, Silicon Valley works great. Then the companies scale up and they move to Asia, uh, and that is the key. So it's in that key domain of that middle ground that uh, I talk about in the paper, uh, but I think it, we're really focusing our, our efforts, and it's that which is um, the, the heart blood, if you will, the heart of the innovation ecosystem. And if you were to give a short version of what could be done in that portion of the ecosystem to prevent the transfer of these uh, growing companies outside of our borders, uh, what are some of the interventions you'd be thinking about? I would say I would point to two of two types, and um, both of them can be summarized by let's just do what successful other countries have already done, by which I mean the Asian tigers and China. Why are, why is Taiwan, it's a very small dot of a country, the world leader in semiconductor. Why is South Korea such an incredible powerhouse? What about Singapore? What are they doing? So let, and let you figure it out and let's do it. They're doing basically two things. First of all, the, pub, the governments, the public sectors in those countries invest a lot of public money, not only in scientific research, but in product development. If you want to think about this, they don't have to worry so much about the R, because they get the R from the NIH, thank you. They invest in the D of R&D. So that's the first part is really, and it's sometimes referred to as patient capital, allowing those little startups to have enough money to scale up, to, to get their products from prototype to real product with public money. And we already do that a little bit in the United States called something called the SBIR program that could be dramatically and should be dramatically scaled up. So first of all, the first part of it is patient capital in product development using public money. All right, that's number one. And number two is, once again, how do they do it in China, is using the, the power of the purse of public purchasing, public procurement to favor um, uh, products and companies that are financed with public money. There is nothing wrong, uh, as President Biden says, uh, to um, have domestic contact, to favor when you're buying, when the government, U.S. government buys, doesn't matter what it is, military, whatever, they favor American companies. Doesn't The quality's got to be the same as, as from elsewhere. I mean, we're not shading quality here, but we need to favor our own companies just the way everybody else does it. Basically, we've been, the U.S. has been the only major country in the world which has had this libertarian, doesn't matter, don't, the government should always be, the best government is that which does it, which does the least. That legacy 
has led to the the deindustrialization of uh, you know of America and particularly in the high tech sectors and that's basically what the president uh, is trying to change. Okay, so I got to say you make this sound both uh, obvious and. Uh not even that hard to do, but I know there are some challenges in both uh, designing this and making it work uh, to achieve the desired ends and not some undesirable outcomes. So I want to walk through some of the questions that I have and others have raised about uh, embracing this notion of industrial policy. We'll talk about those subjects after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Robinson about the possibilities of using industrial policy to accelerate innovation in the life sciences in the United States. Um, Before the break, we got a really good uh, overview and some details, I think, about what we're trying to accomplish with such a policy and particularly the the portion of the innovation ecosystem that uh, would benefit the most from intervention. So I do want to um, ask a few questions that will help me understand uh, maybe the limitations or risks or things like that that come up as you paint a picture of what, as I say, seems like a, a fairly, uh, uh, I don't want to say obvious, but but compelling uh, story of what we might do. Um, so, you know, we have, in general, a pretty market-driven economy, and certainly investments in various areas are driven uh, by the private sector and the decisions that uh, disparate actors make in capital markets and investment markets and the like. So when you mentioned sort of this middle section as being one that requires more of uh, propping up, whereas the basic science and the the large uh, 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 drug and device firms uh, being reasonably healthy, I think market failure, like, okay, so parts of this market are working, but what you're, what I think you're saying to me is that parts of the market aren't working. Um, so I wonder if we could look at it through that lens. What, what market failure is, uh, exists that you think we're trying to solve for here by having a firmer hand from the government? Well, um, I guess I would step back for that and say, what are, what's the market failure? And I can answer that. Then I w- earlier you were talking about, well, what are some of the problems of industrial policy? And I would bucket those into two categories. What are sort of the implementation challenges? And the other bucket would be, what are some of the political obstacles? So I see three things going on. Uh, but just to address your first one, which is what is the, the market failure? And that is the basic market failure in innovation is that the benefits of investments in innovation tend to be available easily to all people, including in countries, those that didn't finance the investment. And so what you see is over and over again, the United States finances basic investment, and then the Uh, economic rewards, by which I mean high-wage jobs, industries, exports, military applications, they flow to other countries that take advantage of them, primarily Asian countries. And so the market failure is this spillover, and we how can we capture that? How can we structure things so that those that, that, that finance the investment, which is the United States, gain not 100%, but a good, meaningful chunk 
of the benefits so that we're not, because basically we are financing, we've developed the technology that now China's using. I mean, that's just all there is to it, you know? Uh, it's not as if they have developed uh, by themselves all those uh, aircraft carriers that they're now floating around Taiwan. I mean, where did that technology come from? Okay, so that's that's the market failure. Then I could talk about the implementation challenges and the political challenges. Yeah, so um, no, I think that that makes sense to me. I think what's interesting is that when you talked about the three sectors, the back end also seemed to be an area where you didn't need as much intervention. So, but this notion of sort of the information being uh, effectively a public good completely makes sense to me. So I think it is worth uh, turning to some of the implementation issues. And let's just say, as you turn to that, you know, again, when you, when you think about the, the strengths of capital markets, they are able to metabolize large amounts of information in very short times uh, and they can move quickly if an investment looks good or looks bad. Um, they can take risk, which government is usually not real good at. That's very risk averse. Um, and, you know, uh, people have their friends in their communities, but some of the distortions that happen in political systems, you certainly see this outside the United States where investments can be driven by a sense of what the public good is. They can also be driven by who's the, you know, brother or sister and of the, the the political leader. So so let's uh, get into sort of the implementation challenges, both practical and political. Sure. Well, starting with the, the implementation challenges, like the capabilities, the real question, and this is a to-be-seen issue, is does the United States public sector have the capabilities, the expertise, the staff, and the political cover to do this? And there are those that say, you know, no, that we've been hollowed out. We've spent the past, ever since the Reagan era, we've spent the, the past 30 years saying that the, the government is the problem, not the solution, and that the best and the brightest, and I, I'm a university professor, I see the top students, where do they want to go? They want to work not in the public sector, not for the government. They want to work for venture capital, finance, private equity. That's where the money is. And frankly, that's where the sex appeal is. We've got to change that. And you're saying that coming from Berkeley. That's, that's Yeah. Oh, you, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so, I mean, I've got nothing against venture capital, by the way, uh, you know, but I'm just saying that uh, we need good people running CMS. We need good people running the FDA. We need good people running ARPA, H, et cetera. Now, can the America do this? Well, I think that there's a couple of uh, uh, examples in which we obviously can. First of all, DARPA. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, and it is the entity which funded the most fundamental technological breakthroughs of the past several decades, including things like, I don't know, the Internet, uh, GPS, things of that nature. And the, the, there's been a lot of look at why is the, the DARPA, which is an American governmental entity staffed by civil servants, so effective? All right? We need to study that more. ARPA-H, the, the Biden administration's ARPA-H entity, is a, is a direct attempt to take the, the, the DARPA structure from the Department of Defense and apply it to the, the Department of Health and Human Services and NIH. All right, so got to be able to do that. The other example is, of course, COVID vaccines. 
Um, I think we really just want to pause again and say that despite all of this rhetoric about efficient capital markets and these wonderful venture capitalists, the, the COVID vaccines were 100% funded by the taxpayer. It was the basic science at the NIH, and it was Operation Warp Speed that funded product development, manufacturing capabilities, and then distribution. Okay, it's kind of like the private sector is good when things are easy, when we kind of know what's happening, when the stakes are modest, then yeah, the private sector is just totally fine. But when it comes down to it, when it's really serious, the public sector has to step in, just like, for example, World War II, antibiotics. The private sector did not develop antibiotics. We could, it could be said that a million American soldiers were saved in World War II because of antibiotics. That was 100% government done. So anyway, we can do this if we mobilize. And, but that, and, you know, that's a question. Can we do this? We have a, uh, that gets us back to our third area, which is the politics of all of this. And I'm happy to shift over to that if you wish. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is you're describing something that's possible, that we can rally around focused goals, maybe for limited amounts of time. We can even attract the best and brightest uh, to do that at certain times. Um, and uh, But, I, you know, I do think it's more than just a technical challenge here, right? It's not just that you want the best and brightest. I guess everyone does want that. Uh, but we also need... Um, uh, to be able to use what comes out of that and put it into policy uh, and practice in ways that are not then distorted by the political process. So I suppose maybe it is just a, a, a transition into the broader politics. Yeah, you know, there was an interesting article in, 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 I think it was New York Times, actually comparing the policy positions on major policy questions of leading Democrats and leading Republicans today, in the Senate in particular. And actually, the differences are not large. You know, the, Dem the Republicans are quite on board. I don't think, know if they like the term industrial policy. And they certainly don't like any term that's used by President Biden. But in terms of actually supporting the, the U.S. in its competition in global markets, you know, you know ex-President Trump really turned the Republicans around from a libertarian, Reagan-oriented, hands-off, small government to a, no, we need to, you know, we need to be, you know, America first. And uh, I've got my all kinds of problems with uh, President, former President Trump. But on this particular issue, uh, he wasn't necessarily wrong. So the Republican, there's a certain potential there. The problem is that, 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 of course, that the politics are very poisoned. The Republicans can't support anything that sounds like the Democrats are in favor of it and vice versa. Uh, more specifically, the, the two extremes of the political spectrum, the, the far left and the far right, they don't like this. On the far left, it's called the progressive left end of the Democratic Party, they, there's opposition to any use of taxpayer monies to that's going to flow to corporate America, to business. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about public money going to biotech companies, public money going to diagnostics companies, genomics companies, stuff like that. Okay. And so if you are in the world that business is bad, big business is badder, well, you don't like this. And that's the way it is. On the right end of the political spectrum, you got the same problem, but sort of different. Then there, there's, there's still the residual Reaganite government is always bad. 
small government is good, though, and this is like the Freedom Caucus, and we need to shrink the government, and we certainly don't want to expand the role of the government in the, in the economy, and etc. So it's both the far left and the far right. By themselves, they're not big enough to stop anything, but if the two, let's call them center left, center right, cannot cooperate with each other because of all this vitriol, then that I see that as the Achilles heel, not only of industrial policy, but frankly of any form of public policy. Can we, you know, can America address its problems? So I don't know if we want to go deep into this, but you know, as I listen to you, I'm thinking there there really are two different levels of political uh uh, support necessary to make this happen. You've described what I would call sort of the the high level question of can you get the center to agree that industrial policy is worth doing? And given its historical op- the historical opposition by those who are more conservative, can someone convince that portion of the ideological spectrum that this is a good idea? That that's definitely one level where you need political support. I'm actually thinking though, and maybe this is partly because I'm trying to draw. Uh, lessons from the rest of the world as well, which is that, you know, there is this element also of politics, which is more like cronyism, which is, sure, we, let's say we do reach consensus that there should be an industrial policy, but then you've got to make a lot of resource allocation decisions that have a whole lot of money tied to them, and a lot of uh, stakes in where those dollars go. And even if you have broad agreement that we should do it, if the dollars themselves are allocated on the basis of which congressional district the business is in uh, or who donated to which uh, political party, um, that completely undermines the, uh, the, the, the forces that you're trying to, to harness to accelerate innovation. And so, I mean, I don't know if you have a specific response to that, but I think if we're, if we're thinking about the politics, we have to think both about political will to do this and political uh, uh, the lack of political meddling in the actual doing. And if you think about things like Medicare rate setting, uh, not exactly, you know, uh, immune to politicking. Uh, two things. First, uh, the question of, well, can we, can the, the, the two parties actually come to agreement on anything? And the answer is remarkably in this industrial policy, it actually, the answer can be sometimes yes. Notice that the major legislation of the Biden administration, economic legislation, the Chips and Science Act, Inflation Reduction Act, these were fun, these were passed with enough Republican support to get them through. And so it can be done. We can do it. We've done it. Now, the Chips Act has its flaws. And I'm not trying to say it doesn't have its flaws. It does. But we can do it. The next issue that you raise, which is a good issue, is the issue of cronyism and diversion of public interest into private benefit. Is that a risk? Absolutely, yes. However, that doesn't is not specific to industrial policy. If we didn't want a certain amount of cronyism, we'd have to get rid of I don't know National Institutes of Health, NASA, Department of Defense. I mean, Medicare altogether. Medicaid, all of that has cronyism in it. So if the fact that we, that, that, that we don't have 100% efficiency in the public sector means that we shouldn't do public programs, then let's just dump it all. And while I'm saying that, I'm going to say, you know, we've got cronyism in the public sector. But have you been paying attention to the private sector lately? Talk about cronyism. Talking about fraud and abuse. 
It is endemic. So I, my, my view is we always want to be more efficient. We always want to root, root out cronyism and fraud and self-dealing. There will always be a certain amount of that there, and it shouldn't be thought of as a reason to allow the, the U.S., the core of the U.S. economy, which is the knowledge-based industries of which life sciences are one, it's not a reason to allow those to be exported to China. Well, I got to say, I almost jumped in when you said, let's throw it all out and say, you know, there are some people who'd agree with that. But then you did keep going and say, basically, we shouldn't hold this to a different standard than we do other public investment. I think that's a, a reasonable point. So as we uh, as we come to a close, I guess, you know, I'm thinking, again, you're a, you're a compelling analyst and you suggest that basically there's a market failure here that's costing the United States uh, uh, jobs and opportunities that could be fixed through some combination of public sector interventions uh, under the umbrella of industrial policy. So as I, as I, and maybe you're the wrong person to ask because you're an advocate here, but I wonder, you know, are there, are there other options if we, if we, if we want to protect, uh, uh, jobs in this country, and we want uh, higher rates of innovation in the life sciences. Is there another very different course that we ought to at least be thinking about or comparing this one to? Or is it really just sort of status quo or this, and those are the choices? Well, I mean, uh, there's the status quo, which I would def- say is means the continued erosion of the life sciences sector in the United States. Uh, another option is to have a, a strong public policy driven uh, strategy to counteract that, which is what we've been talking about. And the third is, uh, could this get even worse? And you want me to sketch what that looks like? This is what it really looks like. China, we pay in the United States, as you know, the highest drug prices in the world. So other countries such as Germany and Japan, those drug companies based there make all their profits in the United States. 80% of global profits are earned in the United States market. So they make money in America, they send it back to Japan or to, to Switzerland or to Germany. Okay, there are allies. Well, guess what China's business plan is? They pay the lowest prices in the world in the Chinese market. So American companies exporting to China get the lowest prices in the world. But they're ramping up. They they make these investments. They're building their companies. They're moving from generics to biosimilars to biologics to gene therapies, cell therapies, et cetera. They're very clear on that. And then, they first of all, they exclude the the foreign companies from the domestic Chinese market altogether, which they have now done in immuno-oncology. And then they prepare their companies to export to other countries. Well, there's only one other country worth exporting to, really, and that is the United States. So we, that what's coming at us is a wave of Chinese drugs, Chinese developed, Chinese manufactured drugs. They, will, they want to sell them in America for high prices, export the profits back to China, and do it again. And if you don't think that that, can, that, won't, that we won't see the same thing happen in the drug and device company, uh, sector that we saw happen, we've seen happen in uh, electric batteries, now electric vehicles, speed trains, um, uh, semiconductor, 
uh, one sector, one one tech sector after another, it's really happening, you know, and it's the next round is not going to be just hitting Ohio and Michigan. It's going to be hitting California and Texas in terms of deindustrialization. Okay, so you may not consider this fair, but here's how I interpret what you said. I asked you, are the choices the status quo or industrial policy, or is there a third? And I think your answer was the status quo isn't really even an option either. So uh, if we stay where we are, uh, the consequences are so dire, we'll have to pick something. Um, I don't know if that, I don't know if you would agree with my interpretation, but that's what I heard. Well, I think that there is real, I think there's really two choices. That either the government tries to save or revive industries that we've already lost, like the semiconductor industry, or the government tries to save industries before we lose them, which is what we're doing, what they're trying to do in the, in the life sciences. Those are really the choices. The third choice is just to lose them. And then the United States has an economy that looks like, I don't know, Italy. Okay, well, on that note, I think uh, you've, uh, as I expected, not only made the case forcefully, but really explained the concepts and what's behind it in a way that uh, is very elucidating. Um, Appreciate your thoughts in this area, your writing a policy insight for us on the topic and getting this conversation in front of us. Uh, Thank you, Jamie, for being my guest today on Health Policy. It's my pleasure, and uh, I always love uh, Health Affairs has a unique and broad audience, and they're the people you want to talk with. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.